Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Deeper Still, a podcast where we carve out space for meaningful conversation about God and life as we seek to pay attention to the ways he calls us to go deeper still in relationship with him and with one another. My name is Sue Ann Camfield. I have the joy of being the host of this podcast. And as always, I'm so glad you're here today. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I just have to say, I have run into so many of you who have just been grabbing me by the arm or shooting me a text and letting us here at Deeper Still know that you are out there, you are listening, and that you have been encouraged and challenged by the conversations you are hearing here at Deeper Still. I just can't tell you how much that means to us, how, how thankful we are that you are tuning in, that you are listening. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Thanks for following along. And I hope you are sharing Deeper Still with your friends. If something has been meaningful to you, I hope you will pass that along. We want as many people to know about the good things that God is doing here at Deeper Still as possible. If you have not yet subscribed to Deeper Still on your favorite podcast platform, I'd encourage you to do that as well. Not only will that help us get the word out, but you will be sure not to miss a new episode every time it drops. So good stuff. Remember to do it. Thanks for your encouragement. But enough of all of that because we have some good ground to cover today. I confess I have been eagerly anticipating today's conversation for the last couple months because it's a conversation that's near and dear to my heart. It's something I have a lot of passion around, I have a lot of interest around, largely because it's a conversation that I've spent the last decade or more wrestling with the Lord over. I have poured through the scriptures so that I can wrestle with what I think. I have examined what the Bible says about this, and I have asked the Lord to reveal how that impacts my own life, me living out my own calling as a female ministry leader in the local church. And and not just me, but what it means for other women in other local churches and how we live this out as a body of believers together. So what is this conversation that I am talking about? Well, it's a conversation about women leading in ministry, but more holistically, it's a conversation about the story of women throughout the grand narrative of scripture and how God has used women to equip, to empower, and to lead the people of God throughout the history of time and throughout the history of the church in so many ways. In fact, my hope is today that you are going to hear the stories of some women that you didn't know about. I know I learned so many new things through my wonderful guest who is joining us today, Dr. Nijay Gupta. Nijay is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He is the author of several books, including a multitude of academic commentaries on the New Testament. He is the co-editor of IVP's Dictionary of Paul and his Letters, which just released this month. And as a seminary student, I have to tell you, I'm so excited about that resource. His newest book, though, is the one that we are going to talk about today. And it is called Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the early church. I'm so excited about this conversation. But just two quick things I want to note before we get going. While most of the conversation focuses on women's stories in the Bible, probably a lot of stories you haven't heard before, we are also going to be talking about some of the tensions surrounded women leading in the local church. And for some of you, this may be a new conversation. It may be unfamiliar to you. You may hear some words that you are not familiar with. And so I just would encourage you as you listen, if you are feeling that tension, if you are unsure, Jot down your questions, take some notes, write down the things that you are wondering about. And then when you're done with this episode, go on a little adventure, see what you learn, look up the Bible verses, look up some other resources and see what this conversation is all about. You are always welcome to reach out to me as well. I'd be happy to talk more. This is a subject, again, I'm passionate about. And so I would love to dialogue further with anyone who might be interested. Secondly, I want to also recognize that some of you listening may have various opinions on this topic, and that's okay too. We may be listening from different theological traditions. We may still be wrestling with some of this in our own context, and that's okay. That's part of the reason I want to 
have this conversation because I want us to wrestle it out together. My hope is today that we will listen, that we will humbly learn, and then we will ask the questions of one another that we are wrestling about. So enough of my caveats. I'm so excited about this conversation. So friends, whatever you're doing, wherever you find yourself, saddle up, settle in, and listen in as Nijay and I go deeper still. Well, Nijay, thank you so much for joining us today. It is wonderful to have you here at Deeper Still. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, Nijay, the first thing I want to say is just congratulations on all the success of this book. I know, especially sometimes as, as believers, we don't write books um, for numbers or for success, success. but to see just, um, I've been seeing this pop up everywhere. I know you had an article on CT recently that kind of went viral and blew up, and it's just been so good to see so many good things in this book getting into the hands of so many people. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. Credit to the publisher IVP. And, um, you know, I, and we can get into this later, but, um, you know, I just had this idea for a book and I had no idea, um, just kind of what kind of broad interest I knew it was a, a controversial subject, but I've been really excited just by the publisher's investment and, you know, so many people out there who, um, even though there are other books written on the subject, um, you're right, it's it's touched a nerve and people want to talk about it. And as a writer, that is very exciting. It is. It is very exciting. We are big fans here of IVP and all the good people and the good work that they do. And so I have no doubt that putting it in their hands was just a great decision also. And I think one of the things that people don't always recognize about writing a book, unless you have actually done it, is how much work this process is. Like you mm -hmm. go through the process of writing it, but then you have to get it out into the world. And yep. I know you, I'm sure you've been doing all kinds of interviews and, and all the writing and the promo you have to do. How, how has that part of this been for you? That's a good question. Um, it, this is definitely new to me. I've written books before on you know a variety of biblical studies subjects, um, and nothing has received this level of interest and attention. So, thankfully, with my publisher, I have a publicist on that uh, on that end who's helping me manage you know media requests and things. Um, so it is really time consuming because people will say, will you write a blog post for this? Will you do this interview? Um, will you speak at this event? And, you know, I have to, I, I'm trying to also teach and write other things at the same time. So you're right. There's the whole writing part of it. And there's a lot that goes into the editing and the publishing. Um, but you know, the book is actually, when the book is actually born, it's just like when a baby's born, <laughs> you know, you yes. got to take care of that baby. That's right. That's right. Well, it's one of those things, yeah, that, that you don't know until you've actually been through it. And so many mm -hmm. people think the hard work is writing the book and not that that's not hard work. But this piece of the process is, um, you know, is grueling and it's fun and it's exciting, but it's hard. And so I appreciate you mm -hmm. sharing that just kind of little inside, a uh, little insider look to the life of, of an author. And, and another reason that we really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. So before we dive into the real kind of nitty gritty, of this book. Uh, one of the things that I thought was um, really interesting in your part of the story that I would I would love for us to frame this conversation is, is there was a day uh, you write in the book that um, if you are like me talking to the reader or the audience, if you are like me, at some point you were sent the message that there are particular places women should be, like the home or the Sunday school room at the church. Um, and there are places that women are not welcome, like the business world or the church's elder boardroom. Mm -hmm. And you would have put yourself at one point in your journey as a believer in that camp where you believe certain things about what women could or could not do in ministry. And I'd like to start the conversation there. Talk about where those ideas came from. And then mm -hmm. what has your journey been to where you're at today? Yeah, thanks for the question. I, I uh, grew up in North Central Ohio, um, kind of near Cleveland, uh, in a small uh, rural uh, town. And um, the church I went to in high school, which was kind of the main kind of formative experience I had as a young believer, was, uh, you know, a conservative brethren church. And um, 
in my time, it wasn't ever explained or outlined there, but there were clear dividing lines in terms of what women could and couldn't could and couldn't do, and where they could and couldn't be, and they couldn't be pastors and they couldn't be elders. And I didn't really think much of it. I just thought, okay, if the Bible says it, then there must be a reason. It didn't at that time feel oppressive or harmful. Women weren't protesting. Um, they would sometimes highlight women couples who were in ministry. Um, so, you know, there were, my experience felt very comfortable. Um, you know, women were volunteers. Women helped out in the youth ministry. Uh, obviously, they helped out in Sunday school. We had a women's director of the children's program. Um, it seemed a, later when I went to seminary, it did seem strange when I like, you know, visited my home church or interned there that, um, you know, this wonderful woman who is, you know, director of children's ministry, she did everything the men did, but she just wasn't called a pastor. Um, so that seemed a little bit fishy, but, um, then I was involved with Camp Crusade for Christ and they also had dividing lines like a woman, women were very active in Campus Crusade, mentoring uh, women leading Bible studies, leading missions trips, but they couldn't be the director of a campus ministry at that time. I don't know if that's changed. And um, so I just kind of had this sort of assumption um, for many years in my early faith that um, the Bible lays out these dividing lines and we just have to respect uh what God wants. If that's what God wants, we have to respect it. There has to be a reason for it. Um, and, um, you know, let men do the men manly work and, and women can do the womanly work and everything will work out fine. The reason why I became kind of troubled by this uh, was really in seminary, when I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell, and I started to interact with women seminary students who felt a call to ministry, including the woman I would end up marrying Amy, who was a master divinity student. And, um, you know, she was really wrestling with her call to ministry. She'd grown in, grown up in a similar environment as me where women were told they shouldn't be pastors. They could be missionaries, but it's best if they're married or they do couples ministry or whatever. Um, but she really has a passion and gifting for pastoral ministry. And she went to seminary to figure that out. And so that, that led me on a journey of really studying the whole Bible in depth. And what I started to notice, Suanne, is, is women, uh, you know, despite our assumptions about dividing lines, women are everywhere and they're doing what the men are doing. And sometimes they're doing ministry alone, like Deborah uh, or like um, Nympha, you know, pe people that many of us have never even thought about or even never even heard about before. And my book really was trying to uncover those stories. These are stories of women that we didn't grow up hearing about, at least I didn't. And had I grown up hearing those stories, that would have made me think twice about some of the uh, places that we've said that women shouldn't be or can't be. Mm. Well, one of the things I love about that story and you framing it that way is I think so many of us probably have grown up in similar situations or maybe now are in a similar situation. I know that was the story for me. I mean, I didn't grow up going to church that much, but by the time I did, I was in environments where um, exactly as you described, a very what we would call complementarian environment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I didn't think much about it, honestly, did not think yeah. much about it. I, my husband and I were on staff at Ca Campus Crusade. Some of okay. our very best friends are on crew to this day. Some of the, the best women, uh, male and women, female ministry leaders I know on staff at crew, we were very shaped oh, by yeah. that environment. And it wasn't until uh, similar to you, I started on a journey of starting to ask the questions and starting to wrestle with the text. And I'm so thankful for um, one of our first pastors after my husband and I were first married. Um, it was a very complimentarian church. But when I started asking the questions, I will never forget him saying to me, you need to keep asking those questions. Don't stop. And he didn't agree mm -hmm. with me necessarily, but he said, you need to keep examining this. And so as, as time has gone on for me, and, and now we're, we're at this church, a very egalitarian church, which is on the opposite side of that. And when I first came here, uh, I remember the first time I was asked to preach, I wasn't a staff member here. I was asked to preach in a, in a new service. And I actually said no, because I thought I couldn't do it without doing it alongside my husband. And so mm. my husband and I co-preached 
And it was a disaster. It was a disaster because we are very different people. And people listening who know us are laughing right now because we are wildly (laughs) different people. We communicate very differently. And I remember when I told the pastor who asked us to do that, I said, I don't think I can do this by myself. Can my husband do it with me? And he said, okay. But he said, I need you to know I disagree with you. And I want you to keep figuring out why you think that. And Mm. and that's one of the things I appreciate about your story and your book. And I could tell a million stories like that about, about how we need to do the hard work of finding out for ourselves what the scripture says. Yes. So let's talk about some of those women. And Nijay, I'm going to give you kind of a a choice on which question you want to answer here, because I can't decide which way to go. So you're the expert. Choose your Um, adventure. (laughs) Choose your adventure. Because there are times where I think we can't have this conversation without starting in Genesis, right? Start start talking about... the way that so often uh, we use the order of creation to mm-hmm. determine um, where we think women fit in the story. And so I thought, do we start in Genesis or do we start with Deborah? And do we start actually talking about some of the stories of women? So I'm going to let you choose where you think we should start. You know, true to the book, I'll start with Deborah because I intentionally didn't start with Genesis because people have really, most people reading the book have a lot of preformed opinions about Genesis, usually strong opinions. (laughs) And so I kind of wanted to start in a different place where um, people don't uh, often have strong opinions because they just don't know that much about Deborah. And so if I could start strong with Deborah and be able to talk about Deborah as a leader, um, it can sometimes you know, kind of shift the conversation a little bit and, and, and allow people to kind of come over to my side before we get into the messiness of Genesis. But let's talk about Deborah. Um, prior to about uh, 10 years ago, 10, 10 or 11 years ago, I didn't know anything about Deborah. If you asked me who is Deborah, I'd say she's someone in the Old Testament I probably couldn't tell you much about. I don't know if I could come up with the fact that she was a judge or not, but I could tell you she she's from the Old Testament. Uh, I was teaching at Seattle Pacific University about 10 years ago, and um, there was an option for a faculty member to teach a community course, um, a two-credit community course, uh, and uh, it was kind of a Bible study. And so I said, you know, hey, I'd love to do that. And they said, well, the course is Judges. And I'm a New Testament scholar, but I thought, you know, I can teach a course on Judges. Why not? Joshua and Judges. So, uh, you know, and I remember one of my colleagues saying to me, you know, good luck with judges. You know, you got to deal with the Le- Levite's concubine. And I, I didn't even know what that story was, but it's a pretty harrowing story from the Old Testament. But um, I actually am so thankful I taught that course because um, jo- Joshua and Judges are such important books in the Old Testament for setting the stage for Israel's movement from slavery to Mount Sinai and receiving a kind of constitutional law all for the purpose of going into the land and settling into the land so that they could establish the monarchy and the temple. I mean, those are kind of the two big institutions of Israel. And the book of Judges plays a really, really important role because it looks back to Moses and Joshua as these great leaders, kind of singular, constant leaders. And it looks forward to the age of the kings but you have the age of the judges, which is kind of a uh, uh, in-between period, and it happens to actually be one of Israel's darkest seasons. Two statements are repeated throughout Judges. One is, uh, "Everyone did what was right in their own eyes." Uh, everyone, you know, everyone did evil and what was right in their own eyes. And the second was, "No one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord." So this was, you know, a pretty dark, low. Uh, sinful season of Israel. And God uh, doesn't have a singular continuous leader like Joshua or Moses or Samuel later on. What he does is they they have these problems with their with the Canaanites, with their neighbors, and God raises up a temporary, usually military figure uh, to fight back the enemy and establish peace in the land. And so you have famously Samson and Gideon Um, and you have, and you have Deborah and she is a misfit in some ways in this book for not only being, uh, a woman, which she's the only, uh, female judge, um, but also because she's not 
a typical judge in the sense that the other judges were mostly warriors. And when we when we find Deborah in this story, you know, when the camera pans to Deborah for the first time, you know, we expect to have somebody, you know, in a fist fight or somebody sitting on a, you know, uh, sitting on the kind of a seat of military power. She's actually sitting on a judge's throne. She's she's the singular judge of Israel. And and remember, their constitution is the law of Moses. So she's a religious. She's she's uh, arbitrating uh, disputes using, you know, the Old Testament law as the guide. So in that sense, she's the religious leader. She's the executive leader. She's the spiritual leader. I mean, we put these categories all different. But in the role that she was in, she was all those things. She said she was a prophet. Uh, so she's that too. And um, she ends up going into war with Barak, um, advising, kind of giving insight. And then this military song, this triumph song is sung in her honor in Judges chapter 5. So, you know, sometimes we look back to the Old Testament, we think, ah, it's all men doing men stuff, and it is mostly men. <laughs> but Deborah is one of these important, I would say, crucial standout figures to say, uh, not only are women welcome in leadership, not only are women welcome in executive leadership, spiritual leadership, judicial leadership, prophetic leadership, but they're chosen by God and they sing songs about them. <laughs> and so if they could do that for Deborah, I don't know why they couldn't do that for a pastor or an elder today. I love that you started your book with that and set that story of that place of, you know, so often we say, what can't women do instead of focusing on what can women do and what did they do and what what was the impact of their actions? And so Mm -hmm. uh, what a wonderful place to start. So going off of that, you also talk about in the book how you had some preconceived notions, even in um, what women could and couldn't do during the time, during the ancient Roman world. And you talk about a couple myths of, mm-hmm. of what women, uh, what we commonly think about women that aren't actually necessarily true. Can you talk about a few of those those myths in the way that it shaped our view of, of women in ministry? Sure. Yeah. I want to talk about the word patriarchy because this is used a lot. It's used today, you know, throughout the world for various cultural dynamics. It's used about the ancient world. It's used about the Bible sometimes. And the problem is it is, uh, it can be a term that reflects a really complex reality. And then when you include the Bible into that, it gets even more complex. So I want to talk about patriarchy. So patriarchy literally means rule of the father. Uh, and this comes from ancient societies where the father of a household, if you think kind of like a tribal society, the father of the household is the kind of authoritative figure of stability and power. And uh, this was true in ancient Israel in, in most cases. This is true uh, in the Roman world as well. And this was the world of early Christianity, right? The early Christianity came to be. Jesus you know, was born into the Roman Empire. We have to just understand that realm, that world. And so we can affirm for certain (coughs) that the Roman world was patriarchal, but what does that mean? That means legally, culturally, and socially, power was officially placed into the hands of men, specifically uh, the the pater familias, the father of the household. And Roman society viewed uh, the household as a microcosm of the entire empire, and they viewed the empire as a macrocosm of the household. So, for example, the emperor was called father of the fatherlands, the great pater familias, right? So the Roman Empire was very concerned with how every building block of society functioned, specifically these households. But what did patriarchy mean? It meant women couldn't run for office. They couldn't be elected. They couldn't vote. Um, you know, they, they couldn't be a pater familias in the exact same way a man could. Um, and so, you know, the Roman world wasn't good for women. I mean, when we think about America pre-civil rights, right? America was not good for women in the sense that women had fewer legal protections fewer opportunities for influence and thriving. Having said that, 
uh, I used to think, okay, that's all we have to say. You know, it was bad for women. But then once I started researching for this book, it seemed kind of strange that on the one hand, you have Roman patriarchy. And the other hand, you have clear cases in historical documentation of women exercising influence and power, especially great influence and power. So let me give you some examples. So for example, we have preserved the ancient city of Pompeii because of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And so we have a lot of information from that city that we don't have anywhere else because it wasn't preserved. And um, from that, we know there were these powerful businesswomen. Uh, one is named Eumachia, who um, through social status and through other means became uh, people of great influence in society. She couldn't hold public office, but she could be a priestess of a, of a, of a Greek cult that was really powerful. She could give money to, uh, you know, businesses and receive a lot of social capital, you know, act as a patron. So we get the sense that even though women weren't on paper given equal power, they could through other means like social class or status, or even through their husbands, like the wife of the emperor, Livia, the empress, could wield great power. So you, you asked about these myths. I want to talk just briefly about them and you can ask some follow-up questions. But, you know, I was surprised at some of the things I learned about the lives of women in the Roman world. For example, um, one of the myths is the idea that women were resigned to the home. This idea that the home is for women and out in public is for men. And that was true of kind of Greek society before the Romans. That was true of ancient Israel in many ways. But the Roman world actually didn't um, dissuade women from leaving the house. Uh, uh, we find women in business. We find women in education. We find women um, not, not as politicians, but advocating for policy. Uh, we find women speaking directly to the Senate. Uh, we find women, uh, you know, let me give an example. Uh, there were these women called the Vestal Virgins. Um, these were single women, obviously they're virgins. They're single women who were come from high class families and their whole job is to protect the Roman fires of uh, Vesta, the goddess Vesta. And this was a huge deal. They were seen as kind of the protect, the religious protectors of Rome and, and by extension, the Roman empire. So they were kind of like royalty um, so, you know, you, I, I almost think of like, you know, the, 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 the royalty of England where they don't function as, you know, politicians, right. You have a prime minister and you have parliament, but they're kind of these, you know, uh, uh, prestigious figureheads, right. The vessel virgins were kind of like, that's the closest analogy I could think of. They're kind of like that and they wielded massive amount of power. And so, then if you transition to the early Christians, it actually makes sense that they um, lean in favor of these women of power and means to support their ministry, like Phoebe. Phoebe was a, 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 what we think of a, sing, a single or widow female leader in Cancrea near Corinth, and she helps out Paul. She's a patron. She supports him. She takes the letter of Romans to Rome. So you have these single women that seem to be women, single women of power. Um, and this actually fits into the Roman world in a way that I wouldn't have understood before. That's really good. So let, let's talk about then when you see these women leading in the early church. So I'm going to circle back to Jesus and his ministry. But mm -hmm. but since you already brought it up, you brought up Phoebe, we see um, Prissa, we see Junia. You, you, you tell the story of these women who were um, not just serving in the early church, but who were leading, who were doing the things that you just talked about that were happening in Roman society. Mm -hmm. And so tell us the story of a few of those women and how they advanced the early church. Well, you know, someone that many of us know about is Lydia. But as I looked closely at the book of Acts, I found out that Lydia is more, much more important than I originally thought. So Paul uh, goes to Philippi to preach the gospel. He goes to an area of the city where he hopes to find Jewish men and women. 
and he only finds a group of women. And among them is Lydia, who is a God-fearer, meaning she's a Gentile who uh, has interest in the God of Israel. And he preaches the gospel to those women, and, and Lydia becomes a believer. And based on what is said next about her, that she and her whole household is, are baptized and no man is named, we get the impression that she is the head of her own household, the singular head of her own household, probably a widow. And um, someone who of means could have a household of 50 or 100 people because it's not just your children. Uh, it's uh, kind of employees that work for you, slaves, um, you know, people could have up to 500 slaves. If they're wealthy, I don't imagine Lydia had 500 slaves, but let's say she had five or 10 slaves. Um, her household would include not just biological family members, but also the people under your protection, the people under your business, so to speak. And so her whole household is baptized. And here's what's interesting is the apostles leave, they go on some adventures, they get in trouble, they go to jail. And then they get out, and what is the first thing they do? They go to Lydia's house. Why do they go to Lydia's house? Because they know believers will be gathering there. If there's going to be a point person for leading a group of Christians while the apostles are busy, and it's not the apostles' job to lead churches, right? The whole point of an apostle is they're sent out. They're going out and about preaching the gospel. And so Lydia is going to be, if not in fact, at least at least, you know, in practice, she's going to be leader of that community. And, and only start when I started to understand the dynamics of um, the skills and the respect given to these uh, household leaders, they're called householders. Once I understood kind of the cultural uh, power and respect given to these household leaders, did I understand it makes all the sense in the world that she would be an instrumental leader of, of that community. And then if you jump over to Paul's letter to the Philippians, he doesn't mention Lydia, but he does mention two women, Yodi and Syntyche, who are talked about as leaders in the church. I can only conclude that they are connected to Lydia. She may have been their mentor. She may have been the one that converted them. And so what's interesting, if you count heads in Philippi, we actually know more names of women than men, and we know and we get the sense that there were more women leaders than there were male leaders just from the information we have from Acts and Philippians. So that's one example where um, you you learn a lot from just a couple couple little bits from the New Testament that inspire you about these women leaders. Well, talk a little bit about Junia, because you just wrote this article for Christianity Today that kind of blew up both um, lots of people in support of it and lots of people that had lots to say <laughs> uh, about it. And so teach us a little bit about Junia, and then I would love to hear why this was so controversial. Right. Um, again, growing up, I never heard the name Junia uh, or Andronicus, by the way, um, because I think partly because people are exhausted by the time they get to the end of Romans. <laughs> Romans 1 through 12 have enough in them. If you make it to 13, 14, 15, uh, you got a whole lot more in there. And then, you know, people don't often make it all the way to chapter 16. And if they do, you just see a list of names and you don't know who's who and what, who's a man and who's a woman, who's a Jew and who's a Gentile, um, you know, all of that. So I remember one of my friends in seminary memorized the book of Romans and he asked me, should I memorize the last part in chapter 16? And I just said, you got this far, just finish it out. But there's that <laughs> feeling that it's like end credits of a movie, like you don't need to stay for that part. But there's actually a lot of really helpful information in Romans 16 about who are these early Christians? What are they like? Um, what are their backgrounds? What are they praised for? And Paul names a whole bunch of women in that list who we don't even know are women because we're not familiar with the names like Tryphena and Tryphosis and Persis and others. Um, and some of them he doesn't name by name, like the sister Nereus or the mother of Rufus. Um, but uh, one of the people named is Junia. And Paul says some interesting things about this couple that we think are a married couple, Andronicus and Junia. Paul says they are fellow Jews. Paul says they are in Christ before him which means they became believers before Paul. And Paul became a believer pretty darn early. 
So that means they could have actually known Jesus in his earthly ministry. I actually think they did. But um, and then it says two other things that have kind of been scrutinized. Uh, one is um, they are prominent among the apostles. Now, some translations say they're prominent to the apostles, meaning they're not apostles, but they are um, appreciated and distinctive to the apostles. Um, I actually think that there's no reason to think that they're prominent to the apostles because the most natural way to read that is they're prominent as apostles. The word for prominent in Greek, uh, episemoi, is kind of like a peak on a topographical map. So you have like a topographical map and you have like a high point, like a peak. And so if you hear the word peak, right, it's going to be a peak within a geography rather than a peak away from a geography. You can't have a peak without a mountain, without, you know, a topography. So it makes sense to me that they are prominent as apostles. Um, the reason why this is controversial is many people, uh, mostly men, have thought there's no way Paul would call Junia an apostle, so she couldn't possibly be an apostle. Another layer of controversy is uh, throughout history, some have made the case that Junia is actually a man and it's two men, maybe brothers or cousins or friends, Andronicus and Junias. So if your Bible translation has an S at the end of the name, Junias, some, uh, th that means that translation has decided they think this is a man. There's a whole long story behind that, which I'm not going to bore you with, but one of the ways that we try to confirm our interpretation of Scripture is looking at what the earliest Christian writers after the New Testament thought. That doesn't make them perfect or foolproof, but not only do they stand closer in time, but they're what we call Hellenophones, some of them, meaning their first language is, is ancient Greek and ours isn't, so their Greek's going to be pretty darn good. And the testimony of those early Christians overwhelmingly say that Junia is a woman and Junia is an apostle. There are a couple unclear outliers, but they're so uh, uh, they're so far out and they're so few that there's really no reason to doubt that Junia is a woman or an apostle. Okay, but I wrote an article on Junia because there's another detail in Romans 16, 7 that gets almost completely neglected. And that's Paul's mention that Andronicus and Junia were fellow prisoners with him. And Paul sometimes mentions that he was in prison in Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. And he'll use the generic word for chains when he talks about being a prisoner because classically prisoners are in chains. But actually in this text in Romans 16, he uses the Greek word, I'm going to teach you Greek words, man, Malotas. <laughs> That's a Love fun it. one to say. Malotas, <laughs> which means prisoner of war. And that's a more extreme term, which probably means it's not, they're not literally prisoners of war, because usually that means you've been conquered in foreign, in a foreign battle. And they weren't. So it's really a metaphor for uh, a hard, a hard condition of prison that is like that of a war captive, meaning they're in the spiritual battle. They were actually in prison because we know Paul is in prison uh, quite a few times. And he wouldn't have commended them unless it was actually prison. But it means it was pretty harsh conditions, uh, you know, kind of what we think of as like serious prison time versus like an overnight in a like a jail. Um, why is that important? Because through my research, I've, I've, I've seen that women in the Roman world were rarely, rarely, rarely sent to prison. If a woman committed a crime, she would either be uh, punished uh, physically, you know, beaten or more likely sent to her home with the expectation her family would punish her. Um, only in the most extreme and serious cases would they actually put, be put in a prison. And one thing really stood out to me as I studied about women prisoners in the Roman world, they weren't separated from men. There wasn't like a woman's prison and a man's prison. There wasn't a woman's cell and a man's cell. Prisoners were thrown together into the same one big room with a whole bunch of prisoners. They would be in chains. 
but uh, there is very serious reason to believe that you know she could be assaulted uh, in prison, if not by other prisoners because they're chained. Then we know of cases where they're uh, you know harmed by guards, uh, by Roman soldiers. This is important because we think that one of the reasons why apostles went to prison in general, like Paul, is for preaching publicly and inciting a riot or public disturbance, which we see in the book of Acts on a couple of occasions. And um, my question, as I've tried to imagine the scene in my mind, is um, what's Junia doing there? Shouldn't she be in a house or shouldn't she be with the ladies or shouldn't she be safely behind closed doors? Where is she and what is she doing to the extent that Roman soldiers are saying to themselves, we need to have her appear before a judge for capital crimes. I mean, that's what Paul's doing right in the book of Acts. Is he's going to appear before Felix and he's going to appeal to Caesar. He's going to do all these things because he's being charged of major crimes. And my question is, what's Junia doing there? And the only answer I can give is she's seen as a threat to the Roman order. That's why you go to prison for reasons like treason or murder, uh, or, you know, it's not for like petty crimes, like this is serious stuff. So I wanted to write an article about her to say, she's a hero because she's willing to put herself into great uh, risk of harm, uh, risk of assault, risk of death, um, for the sake of public uh, representation of the gospel, proclamation of the gospel. And she's and Paul is commending her as a hero. Um, he sees this group of fellow Sunaik Malotas, these prisoners of wars, he sees them as like, like the most noble heroes of the faith because mm. they're willing to do hard time for the faith. Like they're willing to go the extent, uh, the full distance. And so um, she's commended for her public-facing risk-taking ministry. And that I think can be an encouragement to men and women. Mm. Well, and it's, again, it's a story we don't hear very often. It's a story that, that most people listening are thinking, I didn't know there was anyone named Junia, you know, who, who are these women, which is, is one of the reasons this is so important, but I want to fast forward because there's so many women we could talk about. I mean, you, you, Romans 16, you, you go through that list, you know, we haven't even touched on the ministry of Jesus and the way that mm -hmm. he interacted with women. The fact, you know, we're recording this during Holy week, but when it posts, it's going to be right after the resurrection. And when you look at the story of Mary Magdalene, you look at the story mm -hmm. of the women who, who carried the news of the resurrection forward um, and the importance of that. I mean, there's, there's so many things. If we, if we fast forward to today and we look at some of these conversations we are having now in the church, again, going back to where we started about oh, what, what leadership for women looks like in the church, why is it so important that we understand these stories? Well, you know, I taught a course on women in the New Testament. I teach it pretty regularly, but I, I taught a couple of years ago, and we read uh, a book by a Roman historian named Mary Beard, and the book was called Women and Power. And she makes the argument that there are stereotypes about women that come from the ancient world that have persisted throughout time, even into the modern world. And she's focused on politics but it's true in religion as well. This idea of women as um, too emotional, too emotional to lead, um, too uh, simple-minded, um, women as conniving, women as backstabbing, women as gossipy. And um, sometimes we see, to, to be nice, sometimes we see people use those arguments uh, against women in ministry saying, you know, cause they're trying to rationalize preventing women from being in ministry. And they'll, and they'll do that to say, um, Oh, a woman's going to start working on something and get distracted or a woman's going to get caught up in the emotion of it. Or a woman's going to, you know, and what's interesting about the new Testament is um, you have these women like Deborah. And I wonder if there were men that stood in line <laughs> in that long line of people waiting to have their disputes. I wonder if her authority was challenged. I wonder if there were men that said, Hey, where's, where's Lapidoth? Who was her husband? We don't know what happened to Lapidoth. Maybe he died. Maybe he was there. We don't know. 
you know, where's Lapidoth? I want to talk to Lapidoth. Or how dare you do this? You're sinning against God. I wonder, you know, uh, you know, if there were if there were situations like that. But what we find when we read the Bible is women are chosen and affirmed as on their own, you know, on their own right, as leaders, as competent leaders, as strong leaders. Uh, and they're not commended. If you go back to Romans 16, they're not commended for feminine virtues. So the, the most common virtue they're commended for in Romans 16 is working hard. And the men and women are both commended for working hard. You know, and one of them worked very hard, Mary. <laughs> she, she's commended for working very hard. You know, Yodi and Syntyche, Philippians chapter four, both women are commended for struggling side by side, which has the it casts an image of uh, either athletics, uh, kind of like a, a relay race or kind of a team sport, or I think more likely um, fellow soldiers in battle where they're mm -hmm. striving side by side, kind of locked arms, you know, moving forward side by side. Um, the images he's using are quote unquote manly images when he's saying they're striving side by side. You know, athletics was predominantly a male occupation. War was exclusively a male occupation. Um, and he's using that kind of language to say they're fighting the good fight. They're pushing. And he's not saying, oh, the women leaders are sweet and the male leaders are, you know, manly. He actually tells the whole church, be courageous. And the Greek word is manly. <laughs> he's telling the whole church, be courageous. He's telling the whole church, be gentle and sweet. So why does this matter? Um, I do think men and women are different. We don't have time to get in all of the differences, but the ways that Paul commends men and women are not genderized mm. when it comes to leadership. And that's really uh, important because we can, we can look to women as heroes of bravery. We can look to men as examples of gentleness. There's nothing wrong with that. And Paul himself uses a feminine image for his apostleship. Uh, sometimes. So there's nothing wrong with that. So I, I guess one of the things I'd want to say is um, let's, let's not genderize people's ministries and say, Hey, you're a woman. You know, we just watched the divergent movies uh, with my kids and divergent is all about saying, you know, people are in these boxes and they do best when they're put in these boxes, but actually the whole point, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but the whole point <laughs> of the movie at the end is that's not actually true. Anyway, there's a little divergent right. theology for you. Women that's are good. divergent. We did. That's right. That's right. We we my my daughter. I read all the Divergent books when she was younger. We went through the whole thing. So and Divergent set in Chicago. So it's it's okay. a great thing for us people here in here in Chicago. Little little thing you yeah. didn't know. Um. So you know you have this section at the end of the book. You know we got to get to it that says what about and um. You get to this place because I'm sure we have people listening that are like saying that exact question. Well, what about? Paul's writings, Paul's letters, where he, you call them the prohibition texts, where Paul prohibits mm -hmm. women from doing certain things. What do we need to know about these verses? And I know we won't have time to get into all of them. People got to read the book. They got, they got to read the whole thing. Um, what do we need to know about these verses? Um, I, I'll start off with some general comments. Um, you know, the reason I put those chapters at the end of the book is when I have these conversations with people about women ministry, they want to start with the prohibition texts. They want to use that as a lens through which they view the rest of scripture. And I wanted to do it the other way around. You know, these texts seem to say on the surface, women can't. And I actually start the book with women did. Hmm. Right. Um, so, for example, First Timothy, people interpret First Timothy 2 to say women can't teach uh, in the church. But then you have Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos. Um, and, you know, women, you know, should submit, you know, to men. But then you have these, you know, independent women leaders like Nympha from Colossians or um, like Phoebe, who are uh, leaders. Um, you have, you know, people say based on First Timothy, women can't be elders. But then you have Junia, who's an apostle, which, you know, if anyone we would pick to
to be an elder, it would probably be an apostle, right? And so I kind of wanted their people to kind of have that kind of where's Waldo constellation of people, of women leaders in their head as they go to these prohibition texts and then say, could these texts really be preventing women from being leaders in the church? And my answer is no, they don't. So I'll just give you like 20 seconds for each text and then you can follow up as you want. But first Timothy two, Paul says, you know, the controversial part is uh, I do not permit a woman to uh, teach or have authority over men. Um, and I remember reading that growing up thinking up oh, that that does it. It's clear. And what I tell people is uh, it's clear in your English Bible, but it's a lot messier in Greek. Now, as a Greek professor, I don't like to use that line with people because I don't want them to think that I have secret knowledge that they don't. Mm -hmm. And so I like to say for 99.99999% of the Bible, you can trust your English translations that they're giving you the best information on how to translate the passage, whether it's the NIV or the ESV or the net or the NRSV or whatever, like I'm. NLT. I'm fine with the Bible translations out there, but there are a few places in the New Testament where there is genuine controversy among translators and Greek scholars over what a specific word means or a word means in that context. And we actually have that in 1 Timothy 2, where the word for have authority is in Greek is authenteo. We don't actually have a a complete understanding of what this word means. Some translations think it means have authority in a positive sense. I don't allow women to have authority like an elder or a pastor or a bishop. Others like myself think that actually this is a negative term for a domineering or harmful form of power. Because Paul doesn't use his typical word for authority. He has a typical word for authority exousia. He doesn't use that here. He uses a different word. And there's some evidence that this is actually a word that is a negative term. And it, it means I don't allow a woman to domineer over a man. And I think he's saying, I also wouldn't let a man domineer over a woman. So he he's not genderizing it, but he's saying in this particular situation with this false teaching in Ephesus behind First Timothy, this is what's going on. What we have to say is, this is kind of my bottom line for that text because he goes on to say Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't, you know, all of that. We have, to, we, there are two paths before us. One is either this text is contextualized and limited to this specific situation and isn't really about men and women as men and women. And Paul's just trying to stamp out a false teaching or we say it's universalized. If we choose door number two, it's universalized, then we, I think we absolutely have to come to the conclusion that women are inferior to men. I don't, I don't think there's another choice because if we're saying that it's innate to Eve, it's innate to all women of all time, that they will be more deceived than men. That is a flaw in their DNA. That is a flaw in their spiritual DNA. Um, if you're willing to go down that road, which I'm not based on Genesis and everything else I've read and mentioned in my book. Then, then I think you have to admit to that. I, I won't admit to that. I don't think God wants that. But that's, that's to me, that text. Okay, household codes, wives submit. Uh, we could spend hours and hours. I, could, I teach, you know, a three-hour lecture on this, and that's not even enough. But I'll say briefly, you know, when it talks about husband or wives submit to husbands and slaves obey masters and children, honor your parents, um, this doesn't come from the Old Testament. It actually comes from Greco-Roman society, kind of political philosophy of Greco-Roman society. It's called the household code. And it actually traces back to Aristotle. So what is Paul doing tipping his hat to Aristotle? I think what he's doing is saying, this is the household political structure that it already exists in society. And early Christianity is trying to get started here in the middle of the first century. And what Paul doesn't want is chaos and anarchy, which we're already seeing happening in false teachings is, you know, people start to disagree and then there's, there could be anarchy and chaos. 
And whether we like it or not, Paul and Peter and others said, hey, we're going to go with the system we have. But he wanted to see it transformed by, by the, the heart of Christ. So, for example, Ephesians, uh, at the very beginning, I think 5, 4, 521, 421, Paul says, uh, submit to one another. And then he goes on and gives these rules. I, I refer to this as Paul altering the DNA of the household code. Mm. So he's saying, this is what you have in society. But what if we change this strand of DNA and put in the humility of Christ? Mm. Um one piece that I add to this discussion is um, submission doesn't mean giving up your will or desires, right? So if, if your husband said to, if a, a Christian husband said to a wife, hey, the IRS is coming, uh, l- just lie to them, right? The apostles would say, no, don't do that. Don't ever lie to anybody. So there are, there were definitely limits. The way I look at it is the kind of, on paper household of the ancient world um, was like a, like a little business organization, like a small business because you might have multiple generations living in the house and you might have, you know, it's assuming you have slaves, so you have some money, you know, you have an estate. Um, and it's basically saying there's already an organizational structure and we're going to follow that. But here's something interesting about Nympha and Colossians four is in the same text in which Paul has a household code where he says, wife submit, she is probably a single female leader of a household where she doesn't have a husband and she's the head of her household. And legally in that case, again, remember we're talking about Roman political structure. Legally, she takes over the role of the pater familias. We know that. I have the evidence in my book. And in that case, she is the master of the slaves. She is the parent of the children and she has no husband to submit to. Everybody in the household submits to her. So Paul actually wasn't so concerned that a man is the head of the house because he knows that there are many cases. In fact, we think maybe 25% of households had a female head of household. I have some evidence for that in my book. Hmm. Um, He knows there are a lot of households there like Nymphas, like Lydia's, right? Maybe Phoebe's as well, where it's actually going to be a woman in charge. And Paul's less concerned that a man does it and more concerned that there is strong, unified leadership in the household. Uh, there were so many single women that were leaders in the early church. I'm not saying they have to be single to lead. I'm just saying that we just have it. That this kind of shows Paul wasn't, and he actually encouraged people to be single as he does in First Corinthians. So um, this kind of shows that submission isn't an absolute. And it actually isn't a prerequisite for ministry either. Yeah. Well, what I love about you just taking a minute to unpack these verses is, is it shows for people who are listening and their heads are spinning, right? And they're like, whoa, whoa, what, you know, what's going on here? (laughs) Uh, What it, what you're doing right now is, is demonstrating the hard work that needs to go in to knowing your context. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that we all need to be biblical scholars. It doesn't mean that we all need to know Greek. Uh, It does mean that we need to listen to people who do know those things, but to take, to not, um, when we enter scripture and when we're, we're studying scripture to, to take the next step to do the work of what it means so that we're not taking verses like this and saying, this is what the Bible means for all situations at all times without putting it in context, without seeing what was happening at the time, without layering it within the context of both the letter that was written in this case by Paul or stepping back and looking mm-hmm. at the grand narrative of scripture, right? Looking at, at how Jesus interacted with women, looking at how God used women uh, throughout the history of time, looking at his value that he places on on people created in the image of God, like continually st- uh, leaning in and then stepping back to see, I really need to put some more pieces together because I think sometimes what people don't understand when you, when you take some of these verses and then you apply those, and I'm speaking now as a female in ministry, um, when you apply those, you injure people, you hurt mm-hmm. people. Um, and, and I don't know that people always understand the long-term consequences that have for women 
who are just trying to take the next faithful step to do the thing that God has called them to do in the places and spaces that he has called them uh, to be who they are and to do what they are supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And so, Nijay, I know we're running out of time, but one of the things I love about your story, your story, is, you know, you mentioned your wife, Amy, earlier Mm -hmm. as an MDiv student. I, I think she was a pastor for, I don't know if she's still a pastor or was a pastor for a time. And I'm sure that you have watched her walk through difficult seasons where people mm-hmm. have, have probably used some of these texts in a way that have been injuring to her. And I, I just wonder, as a husband, as a, as a brother in the Lord, what has that been like for you to watch your wife walk through some of that? And what have you learned? It is tough. Um, you know, women, you know, even in egalitarian settings can sometimes, there are still kind of remnants and sentiments of misogyny or, you know, um, kind of what she's experienced sometimes is there being kind of, even at, even at a, a church that on paper supports women, there's still kind of boys clubs. So the boys, you know, the boy pastors will go out for beer or whatever, and they won't invite. So there can be kind of, you know, it's not as simple and easy as it looks on paper. Um, so she's experienced some of that. My, my experience has been, um, you know, affirming and championing, you know, as I can, but also just being with her in the midst of how difficult it can be, you know, to um, just know that some people don't agree with your ministry. Some people don't maybe respect you as a preacher or, or what I think she's probably experienced more is the stakes are higher when you're preaching. Like there's more pressure put on you as a female preacher to succeed because some people are waiting to say women are bad preachers. Mm -hmm. And so there's this added layer of pressure that you have to deliver. You know, whereas men, they can have a bad sermon and just people can write it off as just a bad week. But women, you know, have that extra pressure culturally, um, no matter where you are of, of having that. Um, She's done a lot of work in youth ministry, which I think, you know, women can find their way into youth ministry as seemingly a lower level of ministry, which is sad that it's looked at that way, but it is sometimes. And youth pastors are often paid the least and given the most amount of work Mm. because they're kind of pastoring a little church with very few resources, the little church being the youth group. Um, So, you know, just walking with that, I've, I've, I've tried to be an encouragement to her through my writing and she's I think she has some pride uh, in in being a part of influencing me and a part of influencing my thinking. And we try to do ministry together. She's an extrovert and I'm introvert. So doing ministry together is challenging because uh, I'm not out there uh, talking to the people in the way that she is. But, right. um, you know, just being together uh, in, in ministry and praying together, um, trying to support each other is is crucial. And it's a big part of why I do what I do. Yeah, you know, um, I'm so fortunate to be part of a church that's so supportive of women in ministry. And, uh, and you know, I, I've had some of my own stories, but for most the most part, um, just the men who have come around me, who have encouraged me, who have created space for me, who have um, championed me, uh, and women too. Uh, of course, I, I need those females around me too, but there is something... Um, something very helpful and encouraging when a man comes alongside you and is in some of those spaces with you and then also is creating space. I remember saying once to a friend of mine uh, who's a preacher, I said, you know, even in a church like ours, sometimes I stand on stage and one of my first thoughts as a preacher is, um, who doesn't think I should be here? Mm. You know, that's the thought I'm very, who, I wonder who's listening right now who doesn't think I should be here. And my friend said to me, he said, you know what, as a man, I've never had that thought. He said, sometimes I'll think, am I good enough? Do people want to listen to me? But I've never had to question whether someone thinks I should be in that space or not. Mm. And so even having those conversations is, is encouraging and helpful in this co-laboring of male, female, let's do it together. Let's be in it together for the glory of God is just, is such a huge a huge encouragement. Um, All right. Well, my last question, I can't believe we're out of time because I didn't even get to, we never did circle back to Genesis. And so people are (laughs) going to have to read the book. There's so many things I have notes written on that I'm like, wow, we did not get to that. So I can't encourage people enough to pick up this book. But the question I always like to end on for my guests is, is what I call the deeper still question, because that's the name of the podcast. And we truly believe here that we are all a work in progress 
that, um, you know, just when we think we've figured something out, um, that's usually when God uh, nudges us and says, you know what, not, you're not quite there yet. And he calls us to go deeper and then he calls us to go deeper still. And so my question for you, Nijay, is where is God calling you in your present life and circumstances to go deeper still? Great question. Um, you know, I, you know, as a, you know, as a younger Christian, I, I had so many questions and I went to seminary to get answers. You know, I wanted to be able to give answers to people about all these complex and messy things in the Bible. And lately, um, kind of the call to discipleship, the call to depth is really being, uh, okay with not having all the answers. And my, my, my friend, AJ Swoboda and I, we have a podcast called slow theology. And the whole point of our podcast really is to say, um, God's not really that concerned that we have all the answers, but that we continue on the long obedience in the same direction with him. Mm -hmm. That's a line from Eugene Peterson. And so, you know, for me, the path of discipleship really is being slow in my learning, being slow in my meditation so that I can be focused on Christ and not focused on knowing everything. Um, sometimes knowing everything actually distracts us from listening to Christ and in humility recognizing the poverty of our understanding. So I feel like the depth from my formation is happening in um, just being in the presence of God, slowing down, savoring, savoring scripture rather than um, dissecting scripture, I guess. And a uh, lesson I wish I learned 20 years ago, but but uh, great, great time now to to learn those lessons. Well, Nijay, that's a perfect way to finish us, a perfect way to just um, sit with that as we continue our own journeys. And so thank you so much for being here. Continued blessings just on your book and um, all the wonderful things that you're doing as you continue to tell her story, as well as continue to teach and lead in all the many ways that you're doing. So thanks so much for being here with us today. Great conversation. Appreciate it. Well, friends, thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope and I pray that whatever your experience is with this conversation, I hope it inspires you to pick up your Bible, to dig a little deeper into some of the things perhaps you didn't know were there before, and just ask God to reveal some new things to you. And for all the women listening, I just want to say whatever your sphere of influence, however you are choosing to lead, whether that's in a Sunday school classroom or preaching on a Sunday morning, or maybe somewhere in between, I just pray that you continue to walk boldly into the places and the spaces that God has called you to this day. Once again, be sure to buy Nijay's book, Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. You can follow Nijay on social media. Be sure to check out his blog. That is cruxolablog.com. Well, we'll be back in two weeks with my friend Tara Vincent from World Relief as we have a conversation about the good work that World Relief is doing. And, and that conversation is going to be part of the domestic mission fest we are hosting here at Christchurch. And so if you are part of Christchurch, be sure to be on the lookout for all the good things that we will be doing the weekend of April 22nd. Until then, my friends, may go in God's grace. Mm -hmm.